In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts again this evening as we always do. We hope that and pray that we are open to the Spirit speaking to us through, through Holy Scripture. Uh, we're also asking that you help us to uh, ignore the kids on the other side of this partition here so that we don't have any uh, interference. And we just give you praise and thanksgiving and all things in Jesus' name. Tonight we're going to get into the depths of Paul's theory on justification by faith. Now, he's gone over this both in uh, uh, the letter to the Galatians that we studied earlier and in chapters 1 through uh, 1 and 2 or up through uh, 3 uh, verse 20. Nevertheless, now this is actually the crux of the entire theory that he's really getting into. And it's not near as difficult as it uh, might seem when you're reading. Uh, Paul has a way of adding a lot of uh, verbiage that seems to make everything a little confusing. And I think that's why we have a much smaller uh, attendance here at this particular session uh, as compared to many of the previous sessions because people are just so uh, taken up by the wording of Paul's letters that they get confused and sort of give up. But it's really not as difficult as it may seem. And then what I want to do is to talk about what does this mean to us today? Because I'm sure that all of you have probably thought as you went through reading these two chapters is why do we worry about all of this? It's like preaching to the choir. Is it not? Because all of you are baptized, I'm sure, and all of you believe in Christ and in the church and so forth. Uh, so why is this important? And there is a very important reason for it, and that's what I do want to get into. Uh, rather than go through some of the exercises that the author of this book uh, kind of recommends, what I'd like to do is take the first sentence uh, that he offers uh, in the commentary here on page 52, at the bottom of the uh, page, in reference to these chapters, he said, having argued his thesis by means of the antithesis in chapters 1 through 3, uh, verse 20, Paul now formulates it positively in a section that is, and isn't this a lovely word here, soteriologically, and, and Christologically significant, but dense. Um, I think dense is a rather polite word. Uh, he probably means uh, confusing. Eh? I highlight five key points and leave it to advanced students, of course, which you all are, I'm sure, uh, an investigation of the likelihood that Paul adapted earlier traditions in the uh, Verse 3, or, or as shown in verse uh, chapters 3, verse 24 through 26, 
first, and, and we'll go into that later. What I want to do is take this idea of the thesis and the antithesis and go through some of that. Now, what is the third leg of that trio that's missing? Anyone? You have something, you have an antithesis, and you have, an, I mean, a thesis and then an antithesis. Oh, you have the first, the first part of it. You have a hypothesis, yes. A hypothesis, then a thesis, then an antithesis, okay? In other words, if the hypothesis is a fact, and it is true, and unarguable, and the thesis is similar to the hypothesis, and is also unarguable, because they are, are, let's say, complementary, then it would automatically mean that the antithesis is also true, but not necessarily complementary. Doesn't that make sense? <laughs> I think I lost you. <laughs> if you look on the handout that I've given you here, the hypothesis here, is that, now, before we get into that, let's set the scene here. Paul is writing not only to the Romans. Remember I said he was so on fire with this message that he had to get out, that I'm sure that this letter was circulated among all Christians of that time period in a very short order. And he probably made sure that it was. Okay, because if he was writing just to the Romans, most of whom were Gentiles converted to Christianity, they wouldn't have cared much about Abraham and the law. So why make a big deal out of it? So obviously, Paul was writing for the general Christian community of his time, all right, and particularly the Jewish people who converted to Christianity were probably still struggling with this whole idea that the law that they had observed from their birth for centuries, for 2,000 years, uh, is now being made void. Well, that isn't exactly the the correct way to uh, phrase that, but nevertheless, I, I'll do that for the time being. We'll get into it in more detail uh, when we get into chapters 5 and 6. Uh, but you can see the problem that is set up between the early Christians, particularly the Jewish people who converted to Christianity, they're still wrestling with this whole idea. And it has not been clarified uh, to any satisfactory degree for them. And down through history, even Christians have taken this whole idea of justification by faith and not by the law uh, in various ways. And of course, it was at the heart of the 
Protestant Reformation because Martin Luther's followers took this whole concept and said, if our faith is from Christ, why do we need a church hierarchy? Why do we need all of the structure that uh, has been built up in the past 1500 years since Christ to the time of Luther, okay? And that was a big question that a lot of people wrestled with at that time period. And unfortunately, his followers then took it a step further that if all we need is faith for salvation, uh, we probably don't have to go any further. And they took it as license to do practically anything they wanted uh, because faith was sufficient. And they called it their doctrine of solo fide, which is Latin, of course, for faith alone. All right. Then they went another step forward, forward, whatever, really backward, yes, uh, and said, well, if all we need is faith and we don't really need the structure of the church, then since faith comes from scripture, all we need is scripture, and they developed their concept of solo scriptura. Okay. Well, if you take solo scriptura, which means scripture alone, and say that they don't need the church to tell them about the scripture, then if you ask them, well, who developed and selected the scripture of the New Testament? which they are basing their faith on. And that comes from the church. So if they say that the church isn't necessary, but yet they're basing their life, their theories, on something that the church developed, then they're practically voiding their own ideas. Okay. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. So, what we're trying to get into now is to clarify this whole idea of faith, I mean, justification by faith. All right. And again, I want to explain, uh, if you haven't sort of got it in your mind, the idea of what do we mean by justification. Remember, it is not a legal term. Okay. We do have the, the idea of justice comes from the same root word, but we are not talking about a legal definition. Well, this is a spiritual term, all right? But justification is, and I'm being very simplistic when I say this, but it's, it's an easy explanation. It is taking somebody who was on the wrong road that is following the Mosaic law to the nth degree and putting them on the right road to God through Jesus Christ. All right. So it is turning them around and putting them on the right road. Now, righteousness, which is often used more by Protestants than Catholics, but Catholics are now beginning to use the term 
because it is very close to holiness. And when used in conjunction with uh, Jesus Christ or with God, then it does mean holiness, but divine holiness, all right? But for those people who are classified or consider themselves righteous, it means that they consider themselves holy or a little bit further down the road to God, all right? That leads to God. So, justification and righteousness are very closely related, uh, but one is setting uh, him or herself on the right road heading towards God through Jesus Christ, and the other one, righteousness, means that you're a little further down the road. Neither of them mean sanctification, all right? Very few people get to that level while they're still living. All right, you have somebody like St. Francis of Assisi, Mother Teresa, perhaps, and uh, a number of other saints who were declared saints while they were still living. But those are very few and far between. Okay, now, after, of course, their demise, such as uh, Pope John Paul II, there is a very lengthy process by which uh, they will eventually, if not already for some of them, be declared a saint. And the word, of course, is canonization. And all that means is that they are on the list of recognized people who are in heaven. Okay? The people that the church declares because of a various lengthy and uh, uh, difficult process have been declared as being in heaven. And of course, everybody in heaven is sanctified or saints. Everyone. You know, if your Aunt Minnie or Uncle John is in uh, heaven for sure, then you can think of him and her as saints. All right? Unfortunately, the church will not uh, allow you to put up a sign saying this is the home of, uh, you know, St. John, John Jones or whatever. Uh-huh. Or Aunt Minnie Pearl or whatever. Okay? Uh, but nevertheless, you got that kind of straight? All right? Okay. I hope, I hope so. All right. So, let's go through this so that we can uh, kind of clarify in our minds, and then following this, of course, is a little bit easier chapter on the application. Beginning on page 52, chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, has been manifested apart from the law through testi- though testified to by the law and the prophets. All right? The righteousness of God has been testified by the prophets and by the law itself. All right? Because the law is what gave the early Jewish people structure and a, uh, you might say, a recognized 
way of life that was apart from any other nation around them. All right. Now, not all of the 613 laws really uh, of the Mosaic law should really be classified as part of of the law, but but for simplicity's sake, we will just accept that. The holiness. I'll uh, see. What we got through that. For there is no distinction. All have sinned. That is, all humanity has sinned and are deprived of the glory of God. But we, they, it says they, I would suggest that you put a line through that and put we because it's the same today as it was then. We are justified freely by his capital, his grace through the redemption in Christ Jesus. All right. And if you go back to your handout. The hypothesis here is Abraham was justified by God's faith alone before there was any law. The thesis in this case is that man is justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ. This is what we're talking about. The antithesis is man is lost by not accepting the gospel message of redemption. You see how those all fit together? Hypothesis, antithesis, or thesis and antithesis. All right. And that is what we're leading up to here. We are justified freely by his grace through the redemption in Christ Jesus, or through the death and resurrection of Christ. Remember, this is Paul's most important point in all of his letters. <coughs> Redemption in Jesus Christ, whom, oh, by the way, Paul is the only one in the whole New Testament that refers to Jesus as Christ Jesus rather than Jesus Christ, as everyone else does. All right. Remember the word Christ, when translated back, through the Latin, through the Greek, back to the Hebrew and Aramaic, means the anointed one of God. And that is what the Jewish people had referred to the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah, as the anointed one of God. And Paul's theory here is that this is so important to mankind that he's putting it before the name Jesus because this is the culmination of salvation. Uh, i got to back up to make this sound right. We are justified freely by his grace through the redemption in Christ Jesus whom God set forth as an expiation through faith by his blood to prove his righteousness, his holiness, because of the forgiveness of sins previously committed. Now, sort of underline that forgiveness of sins previously committed, because we're going to come back to that 
a little later. But not only was the sins of all mankind prior to Christ, during the life of Christ, and subsequent to the life of Christ, forgiven by the death and resurrection of him. And through the forbearance of God, through the grace and the gift of God, to prove his righteousness in the present time, that he might be righteous and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. It's a little convoluted. You almost have to diagram that back in the, like you do, did back in the English classes in about the ninth, eighth or ninth grade. Okay. But I think we can cut through a lot of uh, the double talk here and get to the heart of the matter. What occasion is there then for boasting? Is it ruled out? On what principle? That of works? No. Rather on the principle of faith. For we consider that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Does God belong to Jews alone? No. Does he not belong to Gentiles too? Yes. Also to Gentiles. For God is one and will justify the circumcised on the basis of faith. That is, if they believed and followed the law to the very best of their ability and their actions and deeds showed it. Um, and the uncircumcised true faith, in other words, those who uh, were converted to Christianity when they accepted Jesus Christ and then changed their life uh, to reflect the belief in Christ, then they both are justified. Are we then annulling the law by this faith? No. Uh, just to clarify, the law is not the same as the covenant. Right. The covenant that God made with Abraham is not the, the same thing as the law. The law was part of that, but it was not, uh, they're not the same thing. Okay. Are we then annulling the law by this faith? Of course not. On the contrary, we are supporting the law. Yes. How can God go against his own rules? He can't. All right. But he can supersede them or fulfill them. And that, of course, is what he did through Jesus Christ. Now we're getting back into the same argument uh, that Paul made in Galatians. Remember, the reason for a lot of this duplication is that he was writing to the Galatians for one reason. And he's writing to the Romans for another. But he's sharing the same points and the same kind of information. All right. Again, he is so fired up with this whole idea of justification by faith that it is overlapping uh, both of these letters. All right. 
What then can we say that Abraham found? Our ancestor according to the flesh? Indeed, if Abraham was justified on the basis of his works, he had reason to boast. But this was not so in the sight of God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. All right? As holiness. Now, what did Abraham believe in? There was no law at that time. Remember in our last session when we went through the four periods of Old Testament history uh, for the time between the call of Abraham and God making a covenant with Abraham to the time of Moses, approximately 500 years, there was no law. There was nothing written. All right, so what did Abraham believe in? The one true God who made all creation. All right. That's all he had to believe in. And when God confronted him with requests, for example, to move his family and flocks and all his possessions, etc., from the land of Ur to um, what is now Israel, that took a heck of a lot of faith, did it not? When he was asked to slay his only son, for whom he had waited until he was a very old man. And that even took a lot more faith. But there was no laws. It was simply Abraham's relationship with God himself. And because of that, it was considered holiness. And by God, I, I, I would think that anybody that was confronted with God with those kinds of requests and fulfilled them uh, would be considered holy. Okay. Uh, it's interesting if you read the lives of some of the saints who had mystical revelations. And the one I really like the most is St. Teresa of Avila. She was a real gutsy lady and she questioned Jesus in in some of these revelations, why he did such a thing. And uh, in one of them, uh, she says to him, why did you treat me so so badly? Or why do you treat me so badly? And Christ said, because I love you. And she said, well, with that kind of love, you don't need any enemies. Now, no, she was, and she confronted popes and bishops and so forth, but she got her way, okay? Uh, and she was considered holy even long before her death. Okay. I'm sorry, I lost my place. Four. All right, yes, okay, verse... Um, verse 4 Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness a worker's wage is credited not as a gift but as something due because there was something already given that was hopefully his work when one does not work yet believes in the one who justifies the ungodly his faith is also credited as righteousness righteousness 
So, also, David declares the blessedness of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Excuse me just a moment. Just have to make sure I push the right button. Okay. Uh, you just never know. And when I get this urge, it's like the Holy Spirit saying, check it. And I did. Okay. I, I'm sorry. <clears throat> Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. And blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not record. That comes out of Psalm 32. Does this blessedness apply only to the circumcised or to the uncircumcised as well? Now, we assert that faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Under what circumstance was it credited? Was he circumcised or not? No, he was not circumcised, but uncircumcised. Now remember, circumcision in all of these letters is not really, he's not really referring to the medical procedure that we all know what circumcision is all about. Because circumcision was a sacred right to Jewish people uh, shedding blood because they were making a commitment to God through Moses. All right? And it is that which we are talking about, the commitment to God through Moses, uh, that you should have in mind when uh, you're reading about circumcision in these books here. Okay. He was not circumcised, but uncircumcised. And that's because circumcision really didn't come into the Jewish faith until much later. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal on the righteousness received <coughs> through faith while he was uncircumcised. Excuse me. In other words, he was looked upon as if he were one of the circumcised, even though at that time he was not and never was to our knowledge. Okay. Thus, he was to be the father of all of the uncircumcised. And you might add in here, on all of the uncircumcised who believe as well as the circumcised. Okay. So the point Paul is making Abraham is really the father of all who believe in God through Jesus Christ or through Moses. He's making a point that it is equal. So, to them, righteousness must be credited, as well as the father of the circumcised who do not who not only are circumcised, but also follow the path of faith that our father Abraham walked while he still was uncircumcised. In other words, those who, under the law, believe in God and follow the law because they believe in God, then 
they are justified. Okay? But as you know, many of the Pharisees were as pagan as uh, as can be, let's put it that way, because even though they were Jews, they were head of the Pharisee party within the Sanhedrin, they didn't follow their own rules. Okay. Uh, in fact, in, uh, I forgot what's chapter now, 10, I think it is, of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus castigates the Pharisees because uh, of that very issue. That they make laws that they don't follow themselves. And yet they go around like peacocks uh, trying to parade their holiness and so forth when they aren't. Okay. Um, again, I lost my place. Anybody? Uh, okay, all right. Inheritance through faith. It was not through the law that the promise was made to Abraham and his descendants, because there wasn't any law at that time, <coughs> that he would inherit the world, but through the righteousness that comes from faith, his faith in God. For if those who adhere to the law are their heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law produces wrath. In other words, the law can only tell you what you've done wrong. But where there is no law, neither is there violation. Obviously, you can't break a law that doesn't exist. Okay? You can't be condemned for not obeying something that isn't there. That's what he's saying. For this reason, it depends on faith. So that it may be a gift and the promise may be guaranteed to all his descendants, not just to those who only adhere to the law, but to those who follow the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, who lives, who gives life to the dead and calls into being what does not exist. Remember, uh, in uh, Matthew's Gospel and in John's Gospel, it talks about the Pharisees arguing with Jesus and Jesus saying to them, if you were truly sons of Abraham, you would know who I am. And they say, well, then who are you? Uh, because obviously, uh, well, Jesus added to that statement, uh, Abraham saw who I was and was glad. And they said, well, who are you then? Uh, surely you can't be as old as our father Abraham is. And, of course, Jesus says, before Abraham came to be, I am. Uh, and so he makes that same argument. But what he's saying is that our Abraham is the father 
of all who believe in God. For whatever reason, as long as you believe, then you are part of God's family. For this reason, it depends on faith. So, it might, it may be a gift, and the promise may be guaranteed to all his descendants, not just to those who only adhere to the law, but to those who follow the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. I have made you the father of many nations. I know I'm repeating a little bit, but that's all right. He is, he is our father in the sight of God, in whom we believe, who gives life to the dead, and calls into being what does not exist. This is God the Father, of course. We believe, hoping against hope, but he would become the fa- that he would become the father of many nations. According to what was said, thus shall your descendants be. All right. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body as already dead. For he was almost a hundred years old, and the dead womb of Sarah. He did not doubt God's promise in unbelief. Rather, he was empowered by faith and gave glory to God and was fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able to do. That is, what God had promised, he was able to do. In other words, uh, fulfilled the promise of a descendant. All right. And from that descendant would come many descendants, plural. That's why the word descendants up in uh, verse 18 is plural. He's talking about all of the descendants, whereas he only had one recognized descendant, Isaac. Okay. And that is why it was credited to him as righteousness, because of his belief. But it was not for him alone that it was written, that it was credited to him. It was also for our benefit, or for us, to whom it will be credited, who believe in the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was handed over for our transgressions, and was raised up on the cross for our justification. Now, let's pause for a moment. As I said earlier, why is all of this important to us? It's difficult enough to even understand. It's difficult enough to even read. Uh, Why is it all important? First of all, we have to know what is our faith. Have you ever stopped to think about what is your faith? Where are you and what do you believe in? It's an interesting exercise. It's something that each one of you should do, particularly uh, during Lent. Sort of take an inventory of what do you believe in and where are you in relationship to the teachings of the church or the teachings of God through the church. But more importantly, what this comes down to is two or three things, all of which are sacraments, all right? Baptism, 
Eucharist. I was going to put it the other way. Baptism, the sacrament of reconciliation, and the Eucharist. All right. Out of this theory, we get those three particular sacraments. All of the sacraments obviously come from God. That's what a sacrament is. Uh, an outward sign instituted by uh, God to give grace. Right? It is the sacramental avenue of the distribution of graces. All right? But the whole idea of baptism should be extremely important to us and we should take it as important as the, the pardon me, the Jewish people took circumcision. Right? When we are baptized, whether as an infant or as an adult, and more so as an adult, because we had little choice as infants, alright, as little or little children. Nevertheless, we realize and probably grew up with the idea that we were baptized and we should take it extremely important as a commitment, as a vow. We have taken a commitment and to exercise our faith in God through Jesus Christ, given to us through Jesus Christ and through his death and resurrection and the extension of that through the church. That is something that many people don't think about or give little thought to it. And they should because it is very, very important. All right. You cannot, or let's put it this way, you should not receive communion if you have not been baptized. And even if you've been baptized in any other recognized uh, church, Christian church, that is. Uh, you do not have to be rebaptized in the Catholic Church if you come into the Catholic Church. All right? Uh, because baptism is so important, such a strong act on the part of the recipient that it only need to be carried out once. And it is sufficient. The sacrament of reconciliation is given to us because God knew and knows that all mankind have sinned, as it says right in here. All mankind has sinned. Well, except, of course, my children. And he therefore provides us with a way of renewing our faith through Jesus Christ, by accepting forgiveness through the sacrament of reconciliation. Right. We used to call it the sacrament of penance, but if you think about it, penance is not in itself a sacrament. It is the reconciliation, the act of reconciling yourself with God through Jesus Christ, the same as your baptism. Norm, you had a question? It just seems like a tennis is more of a... We did tennis for guilt, for reconciliation. 
Yes. Yes. That's right. Yes. Yeah. What Norm and John are just saying here is, when it was called the sacrament of penance, it was more of, of a negative looking upon the guilt of sin rather than on the desire to be reconciled and cleansed of sin, which now the sacrament of reconciliation truly is. So that is why they've changed the name and I think hopefully the meaning to the penitent or the person receiving that sacrament. It's far more important uh, to recognize that you have been reconciled back into the good graces and the justification of God uh, than it is you're doing something about your guilt. Okay, uh, We all carry enough of that around as it is. Yes, Susan? what some of them say, yes. But I mean, that, that's, I mean, it's, it's hard to argue this stuff when this type of thing says, well, he believes and so he's right. Well, well it's a little simplistic, yes. Yeah. If you believe in Christ, then you follow what he taught you or taught us. You know, we you, all know that's Oh, I, I totally agree with you. That's right. That's right. But you see, well, that's true. But see, what they're doing is making their own rules up and their own uh, definitions. You know. Yes, that's unfortunate. Yes, but you're right. It is the wording that confuses them. Yes. Um, I've been confused by that. Where's this I knew anything about God. Anyway, I looked up uh, Christian in the dictionary, Webster's Dictionary, and it says, well, my glasses are very simple statement. Pertaining to Jesus or his teaching, the Christian religion founded on the teachings of Jesus. That is where they are missing. They're missing Jesus' message. Yes. And they, they just totally ignore it. They say, I'm saved, you know, uh, because I believe in God. I believe in whatever they believe in. Well, that's right. And, and you use the right word. They're saying. Yeah. All right. It's talk. It's talk to justify 
you know, their own lifestyle. Okay. And some of them are very sincere about it because that's what they've been taught from little children. Um, many of them do, but not with the proper thought in mind. Well, yes. I attended a Bible study, and the little study books were very selective. They would have certain paragraphs selected for you to read, to make comments on. And I think they skip over a lot of really important stuff, because these ladies thought they were learning about about God and about Jesus, but I think they were learning about Yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. Bob? No, no. Well, you know, the mind plays funny tricks. Uh, and many people limit their understanding to what is convenient for them. Yes. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, a lot of them, there's no hierarchy. They, they sit down and will read one verse spend 30 minutes on dissecting each word and come up in the group with what it ultimately means. Mm -hmm. There's no hierarchy that's, you know, coming down from somewhere, this is what this means. That's right, that's right. Yeah. It's by a, whatever the consensus is that the group is talking about. And that, of course, is one of the, I think, great things that we have in the Catholic Church. We have a hierarchy who has given us the, the right direction. Uh, it might not be the easiest, but at least it makes sense and can be backed up by what's in the Bible as well as what's in tradition. Um, so, we have to kind of feel sorry for those people who uh, take a few words out of context and say that that's it. They don't have to go any further. And we do have a lot of that, unfortunately. Uh, yes, yes, um, yes. The point that the point that Ruth is making, if you look, if you look on your book here, you see these little arrows way out in the margin. All right, all of those are in reference to a specific uh, section. Uh, in the catechism. And in the back of the book, it will give you what that reference is. So that to support the statement that is made there, or the statement of our faith that comes out of the Bible and is in the catechism, you can go to that reference. So that's what these, these little arrows are out here in the, in the margin area. And I recommend that that you make a, a point to read them. Yes, Maria? Uh, I just, uh, I'm curious uh, what you think that the little lady that she mentioned, 
that uh, have taken the time and good faith to come and study. Okay, they're not getting the end result that we say, but they're doing a lot more than a lot of Catholics are doing about their faith. So where do you think the ladies are ending up? Aren't they going to be saved? Because, you know, hey. Well, yes. No, I mean, let's not demean them. No, I know, but what we're talking about are those who are boasting that they know when they don't. Yeah, I, you know, I've seen some of these Bible study groups, and, and there's the earnest people there, you know. They sure. Maybe I'm like not quite the right track or whatever, but they're, they're trying, they're giving their time, and, and uh, uh, you know. Well, that's true. One thing that you got to keep in mind is that God does just does not God is not going to judge based on one or two things no he takes the whole spectrum of our life and looks at it uh, from beginning to end and if it's not positive uh, that's too bad for us but I think most people will have uh, a positive ending. Let's put it that way. And it's not up to us to judge. Yes? At what point then does the Holy Spirit play into all of this? Because once we are baptized with the Spirit, the scriptures become easier to understand. We become enlightened by them. If they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and we shall be saved, I think very well put. Yes. Very, very well put. Yes. Yes. Uh, and, and all of you have made good statements, and I won't, you know, put down any of them. Uh, we cannot judge, first of all. We cannot judge who is going to be saved and who isn't based on what we believe or what we think they believe. All right? Uh, so we've, we've got to give them the benefit of the doubt. All right? But you're right, there are a lot of very, very good uh, people who are not Catholics who do follow uh, what we think is probably not the straightest uh, road, but nevertheless are good people in themselves. Yes, Norm? Yeah, and I, I don't think that they're saying, okay, you're saved, I'll do whatever you want. Uh, what they're saying is uh, you have choices. And your choices, whatever you choose, are going to have consequences. 
okay? And mm-hmm. the consequences are going to put you in the right relationship or not a right relationship with the Lord. Now, and then there's a, many that say, okay, you're saved, you're righteous, or whatever, but you still have to, to uh, lead a good life. Okay, and as I heard somebody say that, the ones who were saved, uh, you know, there's the prayer where the Lord will come to judge the living and the dead, the final judgment. But the final judgment is going to be something like this. Hey, you're going to be saved. You may end up in a mansion up there, or you may end up in a shack, depending on how you live your life. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I always say, Heaven is like a very big church, okay? And God is sitting up there on the altar. Uh, that's his throne now. We don't need an altar uh, in heaven. You want to be way back in the way, you know, first pew in the back door, by the back door? How do you want to be up front? Okay? Um, but nevertheless, everybody inside is safe. That's wrong. I, that's definitely that's right. wrong. It's, it's yes. Once they say that's it, I mean, they are going to heaven, and they'll come up to you and say, "I'm saved." Hallelujah! You know? Yeah, yeah. So, once, once saved, always saved. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's generally. I don't know that I'm saved. Oh yes, you are. Yes, you are. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's say you know, we can't uh, guarantee it. Well, we can't guarantee our own salvation. Uh, just because we've uh, made a commitment at one point in time. All right. Uh, yes, Steve? Well, just the way we can explain that is that we believe that salvation is a process. Yep. Even St. Paul uses different tenses, verb <coughs> tenses, in talking about salvation. He says, you have been saved in some scriptures, and others he says, you are being saved, and in others he says, you will, will be saved. saved. Yes, yes. It's it's a process that goes on until death. That's right. And that's a said that's what I said and what I meant really is when God judges us from the whole spectrum of our life from beginning to end. Uh, and we have to leave it up to that. Okay. Well, that's right, yeah. What you know, sin is a withholding of love uh, in one way or another, and we are based on how much we have loved. Yes, we're going to get into that uh, as we get closer to the end of uh, Romans, and I'll bring in uh, a little paper. Uh, either of you have those papers with you, by any chance? I'll bring in a paper like this that was written back in the year 2004, uh, but it was written for a previous 
lesson of this kind. And it's on the biblical meaning of love. Alright. The word has been used in such a wrong way in modern society that I think many of us have lost sight of what the biblical meaning of love is. Alright. So I will bring in a diagram like this uh, for all of you. Um, and I think it will help you see what we're talking about. Okay. All right, let's go on to chapter 5 here. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith to this grace in which we stand and we boast in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we even boast of our afflictions, knowing that affliction produces endurance, and endurance (laughs) produces proven character, and proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint. In other words, there is always hope when we believe in Christ. Because even though we sin, there is the sacrament of reconciliation to bring us back and put us on the right road again. Okay. Well, you got to be careful about that. You you have to confess your sins between the previous time of confession and the present time. All right. Okay. No, no, no. If you've already confessed it, provided that you haven't committed it again. All right. Yeah. But you know, as kids, I remember. Oh, you know, I can do this, that, and so because I can go to confession on Saturday and communion on Sunday. What difference does it make? You know. Well, that implies. that you either are not really aware of what you're doing or it's meaningless and you're just going through the motions. Yes. Yes, sir. Reconciliation is void if you are not truly sorry for your sins and you make an effort not to do those sins anymore. So if you know that you're going to do them anyways, why bother? Uh, Why bother? You're only making things worse, really, when you do it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Again, John, where am I? Okay. Um, and, oh, all right. Uh, yes, I'm sorry. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out 
into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. For Christ, while we were still helpless, yet died at the appointed time for the ungodly. Uh, indeed, only with difficulty does one die for a just person. Though perhaps for a good person one might even find courage to die. But God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for all of us. How much more then, since we are now justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from the wrath? Indeed, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more, once reconciled, will we be saved by his life? Not only that, but we also boast of God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Very important that the peace that one receives from the sacrament of reconciliation should make us stop and think about why have I offended my God? He has blessed me with so much. Why am I repeatedly offending him by doing such and such? That should be part of our reconciliation process prior to actually going to confession. Think about what we have done and the anguish that we've added to the crucifixion of Christ by our sins. Not that we should be morbid about it. Uh, and conjure up all kinds of ghastly uh, thoughts about participating in his passion, death, and resurrection. But it was done for the benefit of all mankind, and therefore we partake of the benefits of that. Humanity sinned through Adam, and therefore just as though through one person sin entered the world, and through sin, death. Thus, death came to all, inasmuch as all have sinned. For up to the time of the law, sin was in the world, through, though sin is not accounted when there is no law. In other words, you can't commit a sin by breaking a law that isn't there. But death reigned from Adam to Moses. And therefore sin was there. Even those who did not sin, after the pattern of the trespass of Adam, who is the type of the one who was to come. In other words, through Adam, sin entered the world, but through Christ, sin was subjected to the teachings of Christ and his church. And I think if we look at that, we should be able to gain some insight as to what sin is and how it can be rectified uh, through the sacrament of reconciliation. But the gift is not like the transgression. 
For if by that one person's transgression, that is Adam, that many died, how much more did the grace of God and the gracious gift of the one person, Jesus Christ, overflow for the many? And the gift is not like the result of the one person's sinning. For after one sin, there was the judgment that brought condemnation. That is the sin of Adam and Eve. But the gift, after many transgressions, brought acquittal. For we can go back through the sacrament of reconciliation time and time again, provided that we at least make an effort to improve, not just because uh, it's there available on Saturday, right? Uh, but the gift has many transgressions, after many transgressions, brought acquittal. For if by the transgression of one person, death came to reign through that one, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of justification come to reign in life through the one person, Jesus Christ. In conclusion, just as though, just as through one transgression, condemnation came upon all, so through one righteous act, acquittal and life came to all. Just stop and think of that for a minute. Through the sin of Adam and Eve, death came into mankind. And there was no way out. All who sinned were kept from heaven until the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, uh, the pearly gates were not open to anyone from the time of Moses, uh, from the time of Adam uh, to the time of Christ's death and resurrection. And that is part of the whole concept of Christ when we say he descended into hell and on the third day he rose from the dead. Uh, everybody wonders, well, what did he do? How could Jesus go to hell? Well, unfortunately, it's a bad choice of words. It didn't mean hell as we think of it, as the hell of the damned, but the hell of those who are waiting to be released because they died before Christ, uh, but in the reasonably good graces of God. Uh, so not all people before Christ were condemned. You know, probably just as many proportionately as there is today. Um, we don't know. And, there's no point in even discussing that. <laughs> Again, in conclusion, just as one through one transgression condemnation came upon all, so through one righteous act acquittal and life came to all. For just as through the disobedience of one person, or you might say two persons, um, the many were made sinners. Throw so through the this I'm sorry so through the obedience of one Christ the many will be made righteous. The law entered in so that transgression might increase, but where sin increased, 
grace overflowed all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through justification for eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's quite a mouthful. And I'm sure that uh, many of you still have a little bit of questions and doubts and wondering and uh, confusion, etc., etc. Okay? Uh, and that's all right. The whole thing now is that review where you are today. You don't have to go out and preach to everybody. Uh, you don't have to really explain this to anyone else. But it should cause you to stop and think, where did your faith come from? What is the beginning point of a true faith in Jesus Christ for you? And then, what does that mean to you now? What has your life done for you? In the way of spiritual life, I'm talking about, of course. Um, and where are you in your relationship to Christ now? Do you thank him occasionally or frequently or at all for his going through a horrible death for you? Because he did. Somewhere it says, if you were the only person on earth, Christ still would have done that for you. Alright. So, it should cause us to sit back and think about these things. Where do you stand now in relationship or with your relationship to God through Jesus Christ? And what are you doing to enhance it? To cultivate a personal relationship with Christ. Because that's what he wants with you. No, no, no. You're mistaken. That was tried for a while. Pope John Paul II put a stop to it. It happened here at St. Clair. They still, for serious sin, you still have to go to a priest. I mean, my concern, I wonder, is that is the church, because people have stopped doing this, is the church sort of saying, well, okay, at least, you know, they're not doing it the way they're supposed to, but let's have them do it once a year. Is the church accommodating the, the once people? The once a year rule is still there, and it has always been there. It is considered the Easter duty. You receive sacrament of reconciliation and the Eucharist at least once a year during the Easter time, which goes from the first Sunday of Lent to Trinity Sunday. So where did the weekly confession come in that was drummed into our heads? That's the good nuns years the ago. Nuns? Yes. Okay. Well, yeah. that's, that's the good nuns years ago. And so we have no Catholic schools in that way today. We might still have a few, but not like we used to. The parish schools have disappeared, and therefore uh, that particular uh, ritual, you might say, has... It's always been at least a year. Yes, that's part of canon law. Yeah. Yes, Fred? Uh, Frank? Yeah, during the parish time, there's a 
Yes, but not in the way it is today, obviously. Yes, yes. Yes. Uh, yeah, Paul, uh, Frank is asking about, in Paul's time, was the sacrament of reconciliation in the same manner as we have today? And obviously, no. We didn't have priests in the first century of the church as we do today. Uh, the sacrament of reconciliation was given only by the bishop. And the penance was generally a requirement before the sacrament of the, or the absolution was given. You had to go through a penance, and a lot of it was public in front of the church, asking people for forgiveness uh, for their sins. All right? Uh, and it wasn't until you completed the penance portion did you receive absolution. <laughs> As time went on, and the population the Christian population increased. <coughs> Obviously, bishops couldn't handle all of that, so they solicited the priest monks in the monasteries to assist them. Only the monks in the monasteries, because they felt since they didn't leave the monasteries, they were cloistered, they wouldn't go and spread this stuff around. Well, uh, and then that's when the format of the confessions began. And that wasn't until the, the early 10th century. You're right. They didn't, that's right. Yeah. All right. Well, then, of course, as the number of Catholics increased and the priesthood developed also in the 10th century, obviously the two were melded together. Okay. Uh, the format has changed, uh, the wording has changed over the years, uh, but the sacrament and the sign is the absolution given uh, by the priest through the authority of the church. The priest not personally, but through the authority of the church uh, is the one that administers the sacrament. Well, I hope you got a little out of this today. Uh, a little clearer on the whole idea of justification. But more importantly, I hope you can relate it back to your baptismal commitment and the peace that comes from the sacrament of reconciliation and the importance of remembering the death and resurrection each time we attend Holy Mass. With that, let's close for the evening.